This podcast is sponsored by WorthPoint. Find out what your antiques are worth at worthpoint.com. I'm with Jeffrey Herman in Rhode Island. You are in Rhode Island, right? Yes, I am. West Warwick, Rhode Island. How are you doing? Thanks for joining me. Well, thanks for having me on. Yes, and the subject today is we're going to talk about silver and all aspects of silver. You do restoration. And we just had a real brief chat before the recording, and you mentioned that you're trying to get people interested in contemporary silver just to keep things alive. And uh, I think that's what we're all doing out here is trying to keep you know the business alive in one way or another. So why don't you quickly, first of all, give your background, uh, what sparked your interest, and then you can roll right into contemporary silver if you'd like. Okay. Well, I was going to be a clarinetist when I was in high school. Uh, and my family, when I was about uh, 17, my family went to the Cape Cod one day and went to the shop of Neil Turkelson, uh, who's a silversmith and who trained under uh, Hans Christensen. And uh, I saw him hammering a teapot. And right then and there, I said, that's what I want to do for the rest of my life. Really? Just like that? Just like that. And uh, I started a course at uh, what was at the time Southeastern Mass University, which was which is now UMass Dartmouth, and they had an evening course for jewelry making. And I uh, I went into that course after uh, after my high school duties at night, and uh, I just so loved it and was so intrigued. I was there with uh, mainly older folks. I was the youngest youngest one there, and I just couldn't get enough of it. And my father stepfather was nice enough to construct uh, a shop that was uh, probably about five feet by eight feet in our two-car garage. And that's where I started making jewelry for uh, students at New Bedford High School in New Bedford, Mass. Wow. And I gradually started getting more and more equipment. And uh, by the time I went to Maine College of Art, I had uh, I could make almost any type of jewelry uh, with, with the tools that I had, and I did not, I'm not saying that I could get uh, that I made um, uh, pieces with uh, pave setting, but basic jewelry, and uh, uh, it was just uh, it was really a great experience. So going into what what attracted me to Maine College of Art, which was Portland School of Art at the time was uh, Tommy Thompson, and Thompson's name is probably not familiar to most of your listeners. He was a silversmith in Damariscotta, Maine, and he started the silversmithing program at Maine College of Art. Uh, and he really intrigued me because he was a gemologist. He did ecclesiastical wear. He was even doing uh, Georgian reproductions at the time. And I said, well, I've, 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 this is where I have to go because I had I had – applied to four other different schools, including RIT, which is where uh, Christensen was teaching. Uh, but I decided on Portland uh, because because it was fairly close to New Bedford. And uh, it was a very small school, so I knew that I'd get uh, quite a bit more attention. Not only that, the school didn't have a lot of mechanized equipment, and so I had to do everything by hand. All the students there had to do everything by hand. Uh, the only thing that was really mechanized was the, the polishing lathe and uh, we had a kiln for enameling. Everything, no casting whatsoever. I was just going to ask you if you did any of the lost wax casting at all. No, and I, I never really had to. And it, that's what's nice about being in Rhode Island. Uh, when I graduated, uh, I had been accepted to the Sir John Cass School of Art in London. 
and even found me a place to stay. But unfortunately, the school didn't qualify for a U.S. loan, and so I was stuck in stuck in this country, which wasn't such a bad thing. But I was a, a bit disappointed. And so the summer that I after I graduated from Maine. I was doing some production diamond setting for a small company in Massachusetts, and uh, it really wasn't doing anything for me. Um, so I, I call. I, I happened to call Gorham because I was more into hollower. That's what I was making in school, along with some jewelry. And uh, I spoke with Burr Sebring, who at the time was the head of design, and he said, "Come on in." I brought my portfolio with me, and I was hired, and I was tickled because I knew about Gorham's history. And uh, I started working there as a uh, silversmith designer, technical illustrator, and sample maker. And uh, it was essentially paid to learn, um, because at the time, uh, it was the old plant in South Providence, and it had somewhere around 300,000 square feet of manufacturing. And everything, chasing, engraving, they were making the, the flatware chests. Uh, they had their bronze division there, and that was the first large bronze foundry in the country. Uh, and they were making entire church interiors, and you know about the Martellet line. And, boy, uh, just going throughout that factory was a real privilege. Really? Now, can you tell me what a sampling or samplers, whatever it is you said? A sample maker? Well, I would make samples of things that would hopefully go to market or go out and um, and be tested, uh, such as flatware. It would be uh, flatware uh, would go out and be surveyed at various malls around the country to see how viable it would be uh, to produce a particular pattern. And so these that, were your pardon me. These were your own designs. Yes. Yes. Wow, that, that uh, must that must have been thrilling. No, it was it was it was great. Unfortunately, the the design that I produced it was a stainless steel pattern. Uh, didn't make it to market, but Gorham was always known for being more, um, not being on the cutting edge, such as, uh, you know, maybe Jensen or, or Tiffany. Um, and uh, after spending a little over two years there, which was a great experience, you know, going through the silversmithing department and uh, seeing the, uh, if you're familiar with the, the Gorham desk that resides at the RISD Museum with uh, the amazing inlays, uh, that happened to be in the plant at the time being repaired. Um, it was just a, for somebody who's who was 21, 22 years old to have that kind of experience and to see every aspect of manufacturing was just amazing. Wow, absolutely. Now you know a lot of people that listen to this show listen for antiques. I know we're going to talk you know about contemporary pieces later, but um, your website. Which is, uh, can you give the website address? It's hermansilver.com. That's Herman with one N. Now, I looked through that, and there was a lot of frequently asked questions, and you had a really compre- a real comprehensive guide for the person out there with a lot of questions that I imagine some of our listeners would be asking. You know, some of the things I have thought of that I never really looked into, like, for instance, um, do you remove a monogram? Because a lot of times when an auction is coming up, you know, people will call about a piece of silver and they'll say, uh, you know, does this thing have any monograms on it? And a lot of times if you say yes, then they're not so happy. They want things without monograms. Or if it happens to match their family name or something like that, their surname, 
then they're happy to buy it. You know, so there's there's two sides to that. What's your thoughts on a monogram? My thoughts on monograms is if it's a beautifully done monogram, I would absolutely leave it on the piece because it's it's part of history. It's 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 an art form that uh, you, you see engraving on jewelry and other items. But when it comes to hollowware, there aren't a lot of good hollowware engravers left in this country. And if you, you know, seeing those beautiful lines, those beautiful flowing lines is, it's, it's, as I said, it's art. And even if it's somebody else's name, somebody else's initials, uh, I I don't I wouldn't personally have a problem with that. I've got a few pieces of silver uh, in my own collection that, that have monograms and doesn't bother me a bit. Uh, Now there, of course, if, if you're a dealer or an auction house, um, you may want it removed. And what I generally tell people is uh, I, 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 find somebody who you can trust because there are a lot, of, a lot of companies out there and individuals who will remove monograms and leave deep gullies, leave file marks, and, and leave the material possibly too thin to re-engrave in the future. I see. Yes, uh, I, I was wondering how that was even done, actually, you know, because some of the monograms I've seen have been engraved, you know, rather deeply. And, well, and, and some pieces can't have the monograms eradicated. And so what I have, and it's, it's, this is a technique that I've perfected, is pulse arc welding. And it's actually uh, a technique used to fill in engraving with, uh, with sterling, or if I'm removing engraving or filling in engraving on a 14-karat gold piece, uh, I would use 14-karat gold. I'm not using solder, so there's, there's not the color difference that you will notice. So it blends in absolutely perfectly with the piece. Uh, unfortunately, it takes quite a bit of time uh, to, uh, to, to fill in engraving, so it, it normally would have to be a fairly important piece. Right. Okay, this is one of your one of the things I'd like to ask right on your page here. What is the difference between repair, restoration, conservation, and preservation? Well, repairing is generally making a piece uh, functional again, uh, making it uh, look pleasing aesthetically, and uh, restoration is bringing a piece back to where it was. Uh, not necessarily originally, but it could be. It could be totally refinished. Uh, that's not something I generally uh, like to do because if a piece is 150 years old, I don't like to make it look as though it was made yesterday. But if a customer says, Jeff, I, I, I need that piece looking brand new, of course I will abide, uh, but I'm not happy to do it. And very few people will do that because I, what I try to also do as a, as a restoration conservation specialist, is give uh, a customer or a silver enthusiast my absolute best advice. And I just try, I, I don't, I'm, I'm not necessarily a yes man. I'll try to con- convince that individual that I've got 30 years of experience and this is what I would do. And, I don't, and it may even enhance the value of the piece, just leaving the surface for the most part the way it is, uh, but just removing the dents and Again, making it um, more aesthetically pleasing. Did we go over all that? The, uh, the cons- oh, the conservation. Conservation is uh, removing uh, re- removing some very fine dents, but not to the extent of uh, a full restoration. And so, uh, the 
the conservation will be removing uh, maybe some, some very fine dents, removing some scratches, uh, doing some uh, polishing, removing tarnish, and, and doing it in a very responsible way, not just automatically taking it to a buffing wheel, uh, but normally doing it by hand with the most uh, gentle polishes. And, and, and that's something I'm constantly uh, talking about, uh, not only on my website, but I go, I'll go to uh, YouTube and find people using Never Dull and baking soda and toothpaste and toothbrushes, which are really going to harm the surface finish. Absolutely. So that's the conservation. It's mainly, it's mainly make, cleaning a piece and making it look presentable. Now, when you get to preservation, that's applying um, uh, like a Renaissance wax, a microcrystalline wax that will uh, prevent the piece from tarnishing or or give it a little bit more time before the piece starts to tarnish again. I'm not, I've never been a big proponent of lacquering because yes. uh, lacquering tends to yellow and crack over time, and then it will have to be stripped and polished and then lacquered again. So I, I generally tell uh, silver lovers to uh, keep their silver. If they can't keep it, their silver in a china cabinet. Uh, use a, a polish that has a tarnish preventive, or use uh, after it's they're done cleaning a piece. Uh, use some Renaissance wax, uh, and then uh, just keep an eye on it. And the Renaissance wax, even on a piece that's left out in the open, it is going to last months and possibly even up to a year. Yeah, um, you know, a lot of people don't like to have silver because of the cleaning involved in it. So if they can delay the tarnishing a little bit, that's a really good tip. Now, well, well, using tar- using the silver on a daily basis also helps, uh, just like flatware. I- I've never felt that flatware should only be a sterling or silver plate should only be used for for grand occasions. Why not you use it uh, with the amount of uh, consumables being produced today all over the world, why not use something that you really enjoy having in your hand, a beautifully way, a beautiful piece of flatware. It can be uh, stamped. It could be hand wrought. It's got a good weight. It has a nice balance. Uh, it's certainly much nicer than uh, eating with uh, a piece of stamp stainless steel made in Korea. Absolutely right. And there's health benefits too. Uh, there are health benefits as well. It's a, Silver is antimicrobial, so nothing will actually grow on silver. And that's why you'll read that uh, throughout time, uh, people would drink from silver goblets. And uh, it's, it's, it does have medicinal purpose because it's, it, it, it's not, bacteria will not grow on, on the uh, silver surface. And that's why you see a lot of nanotechnology being developed, uh, especially in the medical field, because it helps wounds heal much quicker. Now, does that apply to silver plate that's not worn? But I, I realize once something's worn, it changes everything. Well, that, that would apply to silver, the fine silver as well, because fine silver is uh, most of the time silver uh, plated with, um, or base metals are, uh, are plated with uh, fine silver. Right. So now, it's sterling or fine silver. Uh, and even if a piece is tarnished, the tarnish isn't going to bother you. Oh, I, I didn't even know that. Now, one of the questions that, I'm asked all the time, but I'll let you tell it in your own words, is how can I tell if my silver is silver plate? How can I tell if it's uh, coin silver or how can I tell, you know, if it's sterling? And and one of the things I have to say, after I've been in this business so long, I usually can just feel a piece um, without even looking and tell, you know, right away, not only for the weight, but just the feel of it. 
But I, uh, I want you to explain to someone that may be just getting into this or has an interest in this, how would they identify a piece? Well, I'm constantly uh, emailed images of pieces that need restoration or conservation. And I always ask uh, from my website, my contact page, please let me know if it's a, if it's a solid silver piece or something that's plated or something that's pewter. And it's amazing that the number of people who will send me an image and not know what that piece is, when all they'll have to do is turn the piece over, whether it's a coffee pot or teapot or candlestick. And if it's especially an American-made piece, You'll see uh, if it's made out of sterling, the word sterling, uh, or 0.925 on the bottom. Now, it it doesn't make any sense for any silversmith or silver company not to uh, stamp their piece sterling because that would just work against their marketing. Um, And when we get into uh, English continental silver, you know, the marks may not be on the bottom. They could be. Uh, on the on the front of the piece, on it, let's say you have a coffee pot, it could be um, it could be under uh, under a rim, and anything, especially in England, if it's made in different parts or part, or there are uh, appendages or attachments, those pieces are going to have to uh, contain a hallmark as well. That's right. So all yeah. And if you don't see that, I would be I would be very suspect. Now, when it comes to silver plate, uh, you even though silver plating does a silver plated piece doesn't have to be marked silver plate. Uh, many times you'll see EP for electroplate or EPNS electroplate over nickel silver. Uh, but there's going to there should be a mark somewhere, even if there's just a, a house mark. Uh, but a lot of people can confuse house marks with hallmarks. And uh, in this country, the only hallmarking that was done was in Baltimore, but that was over a century ago. Um, and so in this country, it would either be a maker's mark, and a maker's mark is uh, a, a mark that is stamped by an individual silversmith or a small company, say Arthur Stone, that has uh, other silversmiths working there. And um, uh, so the hallmarking is, is reserved for assay offices, uh, as an example, again, in England, where you, uh, the silversmith would bring their piece to the assay office, have it weighed, and then have it marked with a stamp that would, that would uh, signify that the piece is sterling and not of a lesser quality alloy. Like the lion passant? Is that what I'm thinking of? Or is it's, that... Like the lion passant, yes. Yeah. Now... Um, Coin silver. Coin silver can be tricky because a lot of times it just has the maker's stamp only on it. Yeah, coin silver can be very tricky, but coin silver is fairly old. And if you if you look at the wear marks, uh, let's say it's a spoon. That would be probably one of the most common objects. Uh, if you use a very, very uh, fine silver polish, such as Blitz, um, to polish, you know, go to the, the wear marks, say the heel of the spoon, or where the back of the spoon handle hits. And if, and if it's not readily available or readily, readily noticeable, uh, if this piece is put up against a piece of white paper, um, then the piece is probably coin or it could be a, a different alloy as well. But I, I use white paper when I'm polishing. So if I'm trying to remove some fire stain from a piece, or if I want to make sure that I haven't left any polishing compound, I will put that piece up against the white paper, and it shows me 
exactly what ha- what is being left, and uh, a lot. So a lot of it has to do with lighting. Uh, now, on a, on a silver plated piece, you can still have a uh, say a spoon that, if you looked at the wear area, say that the on the heel of the the spoon bowl, uh, it would still look silver after let's say a hundred years, a hundred years of, of use. So you may interpret that as being, well, it's got to be solid silver, when in fact it could be a piece of solid silver that was inlaid into the heel of the spoon. And those are usually the more expensive and more desirable pieces. Uh, and what, they're, what the companies are doing is they're, they're uh, essentially saving the spoon from, uh, from wear in that area and, and allowing the piece to essentially age more gracefully in maintaining its silver plating. I see. Uh, I hope I hope that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. You know, uh, Roger's Brothers, the most common silver plate in the world, I think, well, I should say in America anyway, um, as I've been in the auction business so long, seeing it over and over again. I have to tell you that once I had a flatware set and I turned it over and it was Roger's Brothers and it was sterling. I've never seen another set. Uh, I saw. I, I've, I've only seen one piece, but uh, I, I also get people who say, "Well, it's very heavy, so it must be silver." <laughs> right, I've heard well, that too. But if you're not if you're not comparing that to another piece, uh, then you, you'll you'll never know. Yeah, uh, yeah. I was, you know, a lot of times when people call me on the phone, they'll say, "Well, this plat, you know, the platter is very heavy, so it's got to be silver," and it's actually usually the opposite. Right, and and again, if you if you put a piece of glossy paper over over any area that you're looking at. You should be able to see, especially if the piece isn't marked silver, if it doesn't have a hallmark on it, uh, some nickel coming through. And normally nickel was used to cover the base metal so uh, chemicals wouldn't, wouldn't leach through, uh, leach through the, the silver plating or the gold plating. Uh, and it also brightened the piece after uh, it was plated. Um, now, I, I, I don't do any plating myself, but I use someone who... Who, who doesn't use nickel, which is something that I prefer because when you use, also when you use nickel, it makes the piece much more difficult to repair. Mm. Mm, I, I bet, I bet. Yeah, and, and also for if you wanted to if you wanted to get a piece uh, engraved, engraving through nickel is like engraving through stainless steel. It's it's miserable. Right, and if you see any turquoise looking tarnish on something, that's usually copper underneath. Is that is that right? Usually co- copper or brass. That that that's considered. Um, uh, corrosion, yeah. and uh, and if you try to that silver polish, you never could. Yeah, it's generally removed with uh, with ammonia, and I have instructions on my website uh, to do that and to do it very safely. Um, and once you remove that corrosion, unfortunately, underneath that, you're going to see the base metal, whether it's copper or brass or bronze. Now we have a a, a past guest that's been on the show that's. He's only a, an eight-year-old kid out in in um, California, and he is called the the youngest American picker. And I caught him, uh, you know, taking the bottom of a piece of silver plate and grinding it down and testing it. <laughs> and I, and uh, it was a kind of a lot of extra work to go through. Uh, yeah, it is. Uh, yeah, when it comes to testing, only uh, only a, a, a silversmith or a jeweler who has uh, acid test. If you can't determine on your by yourself, 
Or if you, let's say if you wanted to send me an image of the markings on the bond, if I couldn't determine, don't, don't use your own devices and, use, and put a file to it. Because if it is silver plate, it, it's going to end up being worth nothing because you'll go through the plate. Now, I should also mention that there's a lot of Chinese silver that's been infiltrating our, our country, and uh, especially when it comes to jewelry. And I was at a show, uh, it was about three or four years ago, and I noticed that uh, the dealer had, uh, oh, about uh, 20 different chains. And she assumed that it was sterling because on the, the tags it said 0.925 or sterling. And as soon as I saw it, I knew what it was. It was silver plate. And I said, let me prove this to you. Now, I don't recommend anybody to do this because yeah, I, I've seen enough silver in about 37 years, so I, I know what I'm doing. So I said, let me let me let me show you that this is not real sterling. And so I went to find a file uh, from another dealer, and went over, and I went right to the clasp. I I filed over the clasp, and underneath was copper. And she was absolutely amazed. And so if you go to e, a place like eBay, and type in uh, sterling chain, you'll see a lot of things that are made in Hong Kong, in China. And it says uh, it may be a, an 18-inch chain for a dollar fifty, and the shipping is free. That should be uh, that should be the, the the last warning you'll ever need uh, to to even look at anything any precious metals made in China, because the same thing is happening to to hollowware as well. Uh, pieces that come in not only from China but sometimes uh, from India. It'll say sterling on the bottom. And I have a, a good friend who's an engraver who engraved one of those pieces for a customer of mine, and he went to Buffett afterwards, and it showed copper underneath. Wow. You know the old saying, if it's too good to be true, it probably is. And it, that's absolutely correct. Yeah. And if someone is selling something too cheap comparatively online, whether it's a weather vane or a piece of silver, then there's usually a reason for it. Well, it doesn't get any easier with a throwaway society of ours. Uh, you know, before I go, before I, you know, continue my, my train of thought, I forgot to mention my, my old friend, Hal Schremer, who I saw today. He was one of my, my other teacher at Maine College of Art. Hal is 85. He also lives in West Warwick. And Hal was a fantastic silversmith and jeweler. And uh, I mention his name only because he's not very well known. He's one of those few people, or many people, I should say, who have worked in their in their basements for years and have had a steady flow of clients. And and Hal has five pieces in the Vatican, and he used to do the trophy for the America's Cup race. Wow. Uh, he's an amazing guy, incredibly unassuming. He never do, did any shows or auctions. and uh, But his work is beautiful from going from uh, jewelry made with granulation up to trophies, maces, tabernacles. Uh, but again, he's never really had to advertise because he had a loyal following for a, a lot of years. And he got his training at the museum school in Boston. Uh, he received a diploma uh, in Fort Sign for, for jewelry making and also a diploma in Swabish Moon for hollowware. So he's an unusual person. And there are a lot of unusual people in this country who we should really treat more as, uh, as the Japanese do as, as treasures. Right. Um, and it's, it, it, it's a shame that these, sometimes these people end up uh, dying unnoticed or not remembered for just the amazing work that they've done. 
You see that in, in every type of art, really, sometimes. Now, one of the things that I get asked all the time, and uh, I'm sure you do uh, a lot more than I do, and that is, please help me clean my silver. How can I clean my silver? What's the easiest thing to use? Uh, well, that's why I set up my silver care page, the, uh, the, the care of silver, which is on my website. I'm always uh, updating it with new and researched information. Uh, I, again, I would prefer somebody to go to my site as opposed to uh, re- needing that visual stimulation from YouTube where they'll find people using never dull and toothpaste, the aluminum foil method which will actually open up the pores of the metal and make your pieces tarnish even more quickly. People using Tarnex. Tarnex should not be on the market, quite honestly. It's more of an industrial product. Uh, People who use Tarnex, it it may clean quickly, uh, but it's also going to remove factory-applied patina, and it's going to turn the piece white. And again, what's happening is it's opening the pores of the metal, and it's giving what it's doing is it's giving more surface area to produce tarnish, and so you're going to find that you're going to have to clean your pieces much more often. They're going to end up turning white, and the pieces end up in my shop to be refinished and repatinated. And you'll see comments wherever you go. If there's a, a video about Tarnex or Never Dull or Semichrome uh, on YouTube, you'll usually find a comment from Jeff Herman that uh, this is not the responsible way to polish silver. For researched information from a professional conservator, go to my website. So you'll see that all over the place. And uh, I eat, drink, and sleep silver. It's, it's a passion for me. It's always been a passion for me. And I'll most likely die at the bench. And I'm trying to get the best information out there for everybody. It's not, it's not uh, a, a housewife or a mechanic who suddenly finds something that's going to clean quickly, and then they have to just get that information out to all their friends. It's it's terribly irresponsible. And there have been many pieces that have been ruined in this fashion. Wow. Uh, I always like having people on that are passionate about what they do. I used to do antique restoration, and I was uh, very careful. And I remember I was at a friend's house, and he just got married to this woman, and they had an early Chippendale desk and it was beautiful, all original finish. You don't see them too often, original finish, but this was old, crusty, original. And the woman said, oh, I want to get, I want to have you refinish this. And I said, no, uh, sorry, I, I totally refused to do it. And the next time I went over to visit them, it was bright and shiny. You know, they just had someone else do it. Do you feel the same way about a lot of, um, you know, there's no real similarity when it comes to silver as far as being refinished, but people can certainly take uh, abrasives and, and hurt something. Well, and, and I think I'd like to go back to the uh, the, de- the definition of conservation. And, and conservation r- really is just uh, dealing with the surface of, the, of a piece and cleaning it. Uh, you know, there, there are museums. There's a museum that, uh, that I visited years and years ago. Uh, it was in Massachusetts. I'm not going to say where it was, but they ended up removing every last bit of patina on all of their silver because they wanted it to look as though it just came out of the silversmith shop. But the problem was, not only did it make the pieces look very two-dimensional, 
uh, but there was there was fire stain left over, and fire stain is the oxidi- is the oxidizing of the copper in the sterling, and so what you ended up with were pieces that had a lot of blotching, and those pieces never would have made it out of the silversmith shop without depleting the copper, which would have built up the fine silver on the on, on the surface. So everybody has even even museums have different methods of uh, of conserving their pieces. Uh, my method, I like to start out with something like uh, Purell uh, because it, it's absolutely non-abrasive or uh, Don dishwashing liquid or uh, Windex with vinegar. Uh, again, these, uh, these non-abrasive liquids can sometimes remove uh, all the tarnish that needs to be removed, especially if you catch it very early in its uh, in a somewhat mustard yellow stage. Uh, it'll also remove a lot of dirt and grime. And so if, if you have tarnish after that, on my uh, silver polish abrasion ratings page, uh, I, I put in, in hopefully very simple terms that if this group of, uh, if this method doesn't work, go down to this group of polishes. If this group of polishes don't work, go down to the next group. And then it goes to the severe abrasion group which I say, if you're even thinking about using these polishes, uh, such as semi-chrome, never dull, toothpaste, baking soda, call me first because you're going to end up ruining your silver. Yeah, yeah. Now, and there's no question you're going to remove, uh, ruin your silver. Mm-hmm. A lot of people will say, well, you know, but it's working beautifully. It removes tarnish quickly. The reason it's removing tarnish quickly is because it's so abrasive. It's like using an auto body grinder on, uh, on a vintage automobile. Right. Now, once someone has something nicely polished, um, how, what's a good way to store it? You see the old original felt bags, but um, is, that, is that a really good way to store it if you're not using it? Yeah, the Pacific cloth is still a great way to store silver. If you're going to store it for years and years, I would store it in that bag and also uh, put it in a polyethylene bag as well because what's going to happen uh, with uh, these flannel-treated uh, bags or, uh, or yardage is that over a period of 20, 25, 30 years, it all depends on where you live and, and what type of pollution you live around. Uh, the bag is absorbing that pollution. But at some point, it's going to be all completely absorbed and it's going to start off-gassing onto your silver. And so for extended periods, it's best to put the, the bag in a polyethylene bag or a Ziploc bag. Uh, and that way, that piece should last for, for literally decades. Uh, also, the... Uh, I also recommend the uh, the tarnish strips. Those are very helpful as well. Uh, again, it's it's all uh, put out in, in layman's terms um, on my silver care page. Also, if you live in a uh, a very humid area, silica gel, which will silica the, the humidity will uh, will uh, quicken the tarnishing process, and so removing that uh, the humidity from the air. Uh, is absolutely going to be beneficial, and that's what you'll see in some major museums where the air is being circulated through uh, charcoal and uh, a dehumidifier also helps. Right, right. All right, so thank you for all that. So let's move on. We're getting toward the end here. Uh, Let's talk about contemporary silver and why you, you are out there trying to get the word out and get people interested in it. 
Well, this year is the 25th year of the existence of the Society of American Silversmiths, and I started it back in 1989 because there really wasn't an organization promoting and preserving American silversmithing. And I say American silversmithing, it's it's silversmithing in the United States. Um, In this kind of throwaway, again, throwaway society, we, we have... Uh, people who buy, I, I read, let me put it another way. Um, we have so much talent in this country, and without showcasing it, uh, a lot of what we see is going to be uh, extinct, just as you as you would see in uh, you know animals being extinct, uh, insects becoming extinct. You know, if people are keep collecting uh, run of the mill. Uh, imports as opposed to saving their money and purchasing, say, a serving piece for an anniversary or a birthday to, if you wanted to start a silver collection. A lot of people, I think, are put off from buying silver because it, it's very expensive. But if you're going to commission, if you'd like to ever think of commissioning a tea set, of course it's going to be expensive. So I would recommend uh, maybe for uh, for a wedding, commissioning a, a pie server or something that's hand wrought by hand that might cost three, four hundred dollars. That's something that you're going to cherish, or the recipient is going to cherish throughout throughout their entire life. And if it's going to be passed down, the uh, it's it. it I, I'm not going to say it's going to be of investment quality, but it's going to maintain its value much better than something that's been stamped or something that uh, that's of uh, inferior quality. And and I'm, I'm constantly trying to get more work for members of the Silversmith Society. We have artisan members uh, numbering about 50, and these are folks who are specializing in producing handmade hollowware, flatware, and sculpture. And... Uh, Unfortunately, again, in the throwaway society, it's it's uh, an electronic society where a lot of people are buying the iPods, iPhone, iPhones, iPads, um, and not thinking about owning something that's made by a pair of hands. Uh, I'm trying to I'm trying to change that, but it's uh, it, it's not easy, especially when you don't see silversmithing being being demonstrated uh, at craft shows the way you might see. Uh, a ceramic vase being turned or uh, or glass being blown and so it's something that's that i'm trying to take the, the mystery out of through uh, uh the society of american silversmiths at silversmithing.com where you can go to that site and you can it, you can look at a piece and see and and see a description of how it was made and how laborious it was wow that's great now uh one last thing i would like to touch on before we say goodbye, and that is silver prices go up, people melt. I want to get your opinion on that. Well, that's uh, a very depressing topic because I know the types of pieces that have been melted over the years. Um, If you could hold on to those pieces and keep them in, if you're in, listen, if you're in dire need of money, if you're going broke, uh, I would, first of all, uh, talk to an appraiser, talk to an auction house, uh, instead of melting that piece down. Why not let somebody else enjoy a beautifully made piece, something that will that possibly could never be reproduced? Um, so I would, uh, again, uh, 
don't automatically go to a scrapyard because uh, there you'll also find um, a melting fees or a processing fee. Uh, and if you go to your local jeweler, uh, they're not going to give you as much as you, you know, you might think you you would make by especially selling uh, a very nice, uh, well-made piece by a well-known maker uh, through an auction house. So I, I would, I would call uh, if you're uncertain about the value of a piece, you know, talk to an appraiser first, go to an auction house and then, um, you know, sit back and think about what you're about to do. Again, melting down these masterpieces uh, is for a silversmith. It's criminal only because uh, a lot of those techniques and a lot of that craftsmanship uh, has been lost over time. Yes, I'm right there with you on all this. I was at um, one of our auctions. I work with James um, D. Julie Auctioneers up in Maine, and we had an auction going two years ago. I think it was a year and a half ago when silver was up real high, and I was watching the dynamics of the bidding because there were three people that were known scrap people, melters or whatever you want to call them, just buying for scrap in the audience. And there was a woman that had an antique shop and was also a collector, she was sitting in the front row, and I was watching this happen. It was great because she turned around and was looking at who else was bidding against her. And if she saw it was one of those three people, she did the Statue of Liberty bid. She just held her card up until she owned it. She outbid them every single time, and they all got mad. And one guy tore up his card and walked out the door. I thought it was, <laughs> it was awesome. You know, and one of the one of the real benefits of working at Gorm, I saw a lot of the salesman's catalogs. And... Um, uh, Martin, as you know, Martelly is probably the most prized line. And uh, I, I uh, conserved a piece just a little while ago. It's, it's pictured on my before and after page. And I, what Gorham did at the turn of the century really quickly is they took the best silversmiths, chasers, and engravers, put them all in one room, and they interpret, interpreted the designs that came out of the design department in three dimension. And this the, the work is absolutely gorgeous. I think it's some of the best silversmithing ever to have been made always sells and for a premium too when it's it ever. absolutely sells for a premium just like my, my other ma- favorite makers arthur stone uh from the arts and crafts period uh but one but i remember about five years ago a customer came to my shop and he brought in uh he said it was a trophy and it was about 18 inches tall but he had a flannel bag over it he put the piece on my surface plate and as he's bringing the bag up off the piece i can tell by the first half inch that it's martelade because it's hand-hammered and it looks heavy. As he's going up, I see koi swimming around the base. As he's going up even higher, uh, there I know, that, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, three horse heads coming out from the center. Oh. and as he just as he picks the piece, as he uh, fully removes the flannel bag, there are three maidens holding up this bowl, the maiden's dresses had started from the base and holding, and, and I was just going absolutely nuts. And for a silversmith to see something like this going to melt or the thought of it going to melt would absolutely kill me. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I, I've that had, was a museum piece. That was probably absolutely, a that, that, that must have given you chills to see that. Oh, it always does. Yeah. Always does. <laughs> I, I've heard all kinds of melt stories that I don't even want to repeat anymore. No, because even they're, England, they're, 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 they're they're devastating. Some pieces have been rescued, which is great. Well, this has been wonderful. And your website, one more time. HermanSilver.com. 
Very good. And hopefully for the best, for the best silver care advice anywhere on the planet, start there. Don't go to YouTube. Please do yourself a favor. There you go. So this is Martin Willis with Jeffrey Herman, and that's it for today. This podcast is sponsored by WorthPoint. Find out what your antiques are worth at worthpoint.com.